Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gen J Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Heffington, and this show is brought to you by your friends at Generation Joshua. As we travel around the country working with young leaders, we meet all sorts of amazing people who are working to change their corner of the world for the better. If you've ever been to one of our iGovern camps, you've probably heard from some of these people. But we thought that it would be awesome if we could sit down for some in-depth conversations and get their stories on the record so that we could share them with the greater Gen J community. This podcast is the culmination of that process, and we think that you're going to find these conversations encouraging and inspiring. So go ahead, pop in your headphones, connect to your Bluetooth speaker, whatever you got to do, and let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of season two of the Gen J podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Heffington, and with me in the Gen J podcast studio today is our director, Joel Gruy, and Glenn Birch, who wears many hats at Gen J, but what's your official title, Glenn? I'm officially the program administrator here. That's right. In addition to many, many other things, including, as we're going to get into shortly, expert on procedure and Senate and House culture and the rules of each chamber. Um, and today's topic is a big discussion. It's been in the news. Uh, if you're if you're listening to this shortly after we record it, it's been in the news. Uh, otherwise, you'll just know people have talked about it. And that is the subject of the filibuster in the Senate. And t- today's discussion is titled Filibuster, Friend or Foe? There's controversy about it. Um, there's a, it has a, a history of, of debate, like like it, it is inherently uh, going to be tied in with controversy because the filibuster comes in, as, as Glenn's going to explain to us, when people don't agree with each other. So without further ado, guys, thanks for being here. Uh, I appreciate you both taking the time. Daniel, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's always fun to talk with you, Daniel. I always love it. And Glenn, I want to let you kick it off and just set up the stage for us so we can kind of all be on the same page. What is the filibuster? That's actually a much more complicated question than you would think. Basically, filibuster is the attempt to slow things down in a deliberative body. When we get to the Senate, that's where you have members of the minority party being able to actually go in and slow or stop things that the majority is trying to push through. Um, Often you think of the filibuster like if you've seen the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and the actual standing on the floor of the Senate talking, reading through the phone book or newspaper, whatever, to stop stuff from happening. That's the less common version of the filibuster. Uh, More commonly, it's just by saying we will not grant unanimous consent to move to anything and to end debate. You need to invoke cloture, um, which I'm sure we'll get into some of that stuff later. So that's kind of the very short version. But basically, it's a tool by minority members. Normally, it is by the party in the minority, but members who oppose what the Senate's trying to do to stop, either completely stop or at least delay that from happening. So it's, it's, it's basically a way that, that someone in the minority, either the idea minority of what the Senate's trying to do or the party, the, the party balance minority can, can delay, slow things down, or sometimes outright stop uh, a piece of legislation. Exactly. Or, 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 as we'll get into, other, other actions the Senate might take. Yes, exactly. Okay. Cool. Can I ask a question on that before we go further? You mentioned that it's, 
basically used to prevent the granting of unanimous consent. And I think most people think that a lot of the Senate moves forward on votes, like the House and like most of our state legislative chambers. But for the Senate, that's not quite true, is it? No, especially not historically. Um, The Senate often operates under what's called unanimous consent, which is where a senator, often the majority leader, but a senator will make a unanimous consent request to move to consideration of a bill or a nomination or amendment or basically anything, and they'll do it by unanimous consent. It keeps them from having to have a vote on it. They don't have debate on it and stuff. And so unanimous consent is how they get through and do a lot of stuff in the Senate. And if any senator says objection when someone tries to ask unanimous consent request, it fails because it's not unanimous. So a senator threatening to object to a unanimous consent request means they're going to have to do debatable motions and it opens it up for the speaking filibuster that you think of with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. All right. So that is essentially the modern incarnation of the filibuster is the fact that out of 100 people, someone goes, I don't think so. Yeah. Technical term for that is called a hold, um, where you basically, it's a senator sending a, often now, an email to the either majority leader or minority leader saying, if you make a unanimous consent request on this bill, I will object. Okay. That's that's really helpful. And so... Hopefully the listeners, even if they're not familiar with the filibuster, have the idea – you get the idea that it's something that someone's objecting and saying, no, we don't all agree on this and I'm going to at least hold it up for a while. Um, How did that – how did the filibuster come to exist? Or or what condensed version can you give us? Yeah, and that's – there's a lot of debate over – exactly the history of the filibuster, when did it start, exactly how it started. Oftentimes people look to, it was in, I think it was 1841, when then Senate Majority Leader Clay from Kentucky tried to move uh, onto a bill to establish a national bank, and John C. Calhoun from South Carolina filibustered that by getting the floor and speaking and trying to block that bill from coming into place. And so that's often considered the first actual filibuster, but based on records and stuff, it's a little bit hard to know whether anything similar to that happened in the roughly 50 years of Senate history before then. But that's usually considered roughly the first real filibuster, at least that we have recorded in history. And kind of along those lines, was the filibuster always an option that was just never used? Not really. So okay. the filibuster. So initially, when the Senate first met um, in their first session, when they set up the rules for the Senate, they included a previous question motion. Um, this, the U.S. House has this. A lot of state legislatures have this. Um, it comes from British Parliament and other places where you can basically, on majority vote, end debate and move directly to a vote on whatever the question is pending. They had that, um, and then it was about 10 years or so after the Senate. I'm not remembering exactly the time frame, but um, then Vice President Aaron Burr was like, guys, your Senate rules are a mess. They're all over the place. They're not organized. We need to clean this up, make have it make sense, and get rid of some rules that just don't 
aren't necessary for the Senate. And one of the ones he recommended getting rid of was the previous question, because in the previous amount of time, it had only been used once. Okay. And that was on an amendment. Yeah. And basically, Aaron Burr was like, you guys never use this. It doesn't seem to be along the lines of what the Senate is, so we should probably just remove it from the rules. And the Senate's like, you're right. Let's take this out. And they took it out from the rules of the Senate at that point. Now, this is the Aaron Burr of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. Yes. Aaron Burr, right? Okay. Yep. Got so it. One, one of the few, uh, one, one of his few ideas that was like broadly, broadly embraced by his, all of his contemporaries at the time. <laughs> yeah. And is still, well, having a, a say in how that room works. Now, I think we'll get into this a little bit later in the discussion, and maybe you can talk some about, you know, how the how the filibuster developed into more of a regular thing for the Senate, but um, let, let's well, and may, maybe this question will lead us there because I would like to kind of talk about see if you can fill us in some more history on how it's changed over the years. So we 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 kind of started talking about the move to the previous question thing. So maybe you can kind of walk us down the road and say, okay, here's where we kind of saw the first – here's here's what happened from Aaron Burr to Calhoun with kind of the first on-the-record filibuster and then to where we get to the modern filibuster. Yes. Yeah, so the quick thing on the change of the filibuster itself when it moved from the generally just the speaking filibuster to the hold process where you can just by saying – I will object if you ask for unanimous consent, that that turned into a way of filibustering. That change happened in about the 1950s under um, LBJ when he was Senate Majority Leader um, before becoming president, obviously. He had the realization that um, the Senate could move more efficiently if he knew who would be objecting to stuff when he couldn't get unanimous consent, when stuff would be filibustered, and he didn't need to waste the time on the floor of the Senate if there was going to be a filibuster that he couldn't break or it wasn't worth to do that. And so the hold process kind of started there in the 1950s and has evolved some over time, but really kind of started then because if you just go with the speaking filibuster, it takes up a whole lot of time on the floor of the Senate and when that's pending, nothing else can happen. So majority leaders have realized that by allowing them to, uh, by allowing members to put a hold on something, they can continue to operate the Senate and not completely stop everything from happening, which is what would happen if they went back to a purely speaking filibuster where you had to go get the floor and talk the whole time. It would stop the Senate from doing anything else during that process. Is that... Is there would there have to be a fundamental change of that for for, for there to be a, a time where we see that something like that happen where somebody's filibustering by just talking on and on? Would that just be a Senate Majority Leader saying, "Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not going to do holds"? Like like is that an option, or would it take a little more than that? I mean, that's mostly that's the option. Okay. Um, there's nothing in the rules that set up a formal process for a hold. Yep. And Say, Daniel, you're the majority leader. My sending off an email to you saying, hey, if you ask unanimous consent to this for this motion, right. I'm going to object to it. That doesn't stop you from asking unanimous consent. Right. I'm going to be there to object. And there is kind of a gentleman's agreement there of 
you let me know, you let other senators know you're going to make this request right. so that way I can um, be there to object when you make it. I remember yeah. one time I was in the Senate galleries watching, and I'm now drawing a blank on which senator, but it was a Republican senator who was going to make a unanimous consent request. And John Tester from Montana was going to object, but he got delayed and wasn't able to be to the Senate floor. And so at the time that they were planning on doing it, the Republican senators like, Mr. President, I was going to ask unanimous consent for this, went through his whole reasons why and everything. And he's like, I know the senator from Montana was going to object. He was delayed and isn't able to be here. So I'll withhold my unanimous consent request until a later time. And then wow. came back later to make that when he could object. Um, now, that is a remarkable act of courtesy in an era of politics where courtesy has largely fallen by the wayside. And, and restraint, too. Restraint, because, yeah. because technically... He would have got what he wanted if he just moved right then. And technically there's nothing barring him from doing that other right. than culture and, and you know, gentlemanly courtesy or, or, or you know, professional in- integrity, whatever, whatever that would be. Like, because I was going to say, it seems like you could get around a hold if you're like, oh, well, my uh, friend from across the aisle had a flight who, that got stranded in the snow, so now we're going to move. Well, you know, they're not here. I have a few motions. Right, a few motions because, say, they're the only one who didn't care about them. Do we, do we see that much in history? Have, have people been sneaky like that in the Senate, or is, that, or is it kind of a, a culture of, yeah, I knew you were going to object, so I'm not going to try to get it around you when you're gone? Yeah, so usually it actually does operate that way where there's the idea of respect and it's a collegial body. Senate's not always. We did have the incident with the caning, um, but the Senate is <laughs> normally a collegial body. As opposed to, say, the House. And Yes. <laughs> and so they will try to work with each other and stuff there, um, even down to... It was in 1913, a senator was going to object to a unanimous consent request. He was on the floor and um, was actually there on the floor of the Senate when the unanimous consent request was made, was momentarily distracted and missed the unanimous consent request being made and failed to object. Um, and then they went through, and basically the Senate voted to say that he was going to object. Everyone knew he was going to object. <laughs> he got distracted and missed the unanimous consent request being made. The chair has to put the unanimous consent request again so he can object. Wow. Um, and they voted, it was 40 to 17, to direct the chair to resubmit the request to the Senate. Wow. And so that's, it's, that's how the body works, is a collegial... We do unanimous consent requests, but if we know someone's going to object, we don't try to pull a fast one. Okay. Um, sorry, that was a long off on where I was originally going with sorry. it. Sorry. Oh, but I so. think I think these I think and hopefully our listeners will agree, but I think that some of this setup work is really important for this discussion because I'll rev- we'll get into why we think this is a really important topic to do a whole podcast episode on, but to the average person, the average American who cares? Like, who, who, I don't care. What, this filibuster, whatever, okay, random obscure part of Senate procedure, 
per se. Um, who cares? So you're telling us why we should care. So yeah. don't feel bad about well, going and, on for a And bit. he's painting us a vision of politics in America that I find slightly more attractive than the one we're in right now. But that's yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that, it, yeah, for sure. It, and that's <laughs> the story that I just told happened in 1913. So that's over 100 years, 100 years ago. But the story that I had with when um, Senator Tester was going to object, I don't remember exactly when that was, but that was within the last five to ten years. Okay. Um, and so there's sure still there remnants of that attitude. Yes. There's still remnants there of that collegiality, and it's not there as much as I would like it to be in some cases, but it's still there somewhat. But anyway, Daniel, your original question was on the whether or not basically the majority leader could just say, we're not doing holds anymore. Right. And the answer there is, like, the majority leader could go, okay, I know if, like, again, back to you being a majority leader, Daniel, you could say, I know Glenn is going to object to this, but it's an important bill anyway. We have a lot of support for it, so I'm going to go ahead and make a motion to proceed. That would force me to, if I want to stop it, I come to the floor, I speak on it and stuff, Generally, it would involve you trying to invoke cloture, which is the way that the Senate actually has to end debate. Um, and if you can get now currently 60 votes, you can invoke cloture and move through with it anyway. Um, so even if even if we were in a situation where you're doing the Mr. Smith goes to Washington thing, even in Mr. Smith goes to Washington, for example, if, if – Taking cloture is an option. They could have said, "Okay, you've been talking for 24 hours, but we got 60 votes, so time for you to, to take it somewhere else." Yeah. <laughs> Sit down. So yeah. the majority leader could force you to go back to a speaking filibuster type of thing. Yeah. The problem is it slows things down, keeps the Senate from doing anything else. Sure. So unless it's a bill that's a high enough priority that they're like, "No, we need to go ahead and do this anyway," it's a lot easier for them to go. Okay, we're not going to do that, at least not right now, because yeah. I know senators are going to object, and instead we're going to keep going through with these nominations for, especially right now, President Biden's cabinet. Yep. We're going to actually go through that the nomination process for them and stuff. So now, let, me, let me try and summarize. Yeah. The, there's a value trade that happens with the filibuster. It's not that things can't move forward with its existence. It's that it moves slower and it's harder, right? But it, does, it can still move. And so the question becomes one for leadership – of one of efficiency versus value. My ability to keep getting stuff done versus how important that thing is. That, that summarizes at least the hold function, right. the hold pro process, I think very well, if I'm understanding Glenn. But, but right. even the speaking filibuster, at a certain point, cloture gets invoked, we can get it done anyway, it's just a whole lot slower and harder, yeah. but it can be done. And Glenn, or a minute ago you said cloture was basically you know, telling them, okay, we've got 60 votes, you get to move on. Is there anything else that we should know about cloture and how that developed, or has it just kind of always been part of the deal? It's definitely not always been part of the deal. Um, it started, I mean, so like I mentioned earlier, the Senate had the previous question motion. They got rid of it. Um, and then in 1841, with that first real recorded known filibuster by John C. Calhoun, um, Henry Clay, majority leader, tried to bring back the straight-up previous question motion, wanting simple majority to be able to get that passed. Um, and the Senate was like, no, we're not letting you do that. And so over time, it then developed. They eventually got down to... Um, 
I'm drawing a blank on the exact timeline. Okay. But it was something around the time of World War One, I, I think it was. Woodrow Wilson had a bill that he wanted to get passed. The Senate had a minority that was filibustering it, blocking it, and they ran out the clock on getting it done. Mm-hmm. And they basically ended up calling the Senate back into a special session. And the Senate went ahead at that point. They had enough bipartisan support to start to create a cloture rule. Okay. Um, and so it has some of the same aspects of the cloture rule that we see today. But the big thing there was you could end debate with a two-thirds majority vote. And so if you had two-thirds of the senators present and voting to vote to invoke cloture, um, then they would go ahead and they would end debate. Um, and the actual changed, didn't that it? That changed, yes. Right. Um, so the actual question that's asked, just because invoking cloture sounds weird, or at least it can, uh-huh. the actual question that like the chair presents to them that they're voting on is, is it the sense of the Senate that debate on whatever the bill, nomination, whatever it is, be brought to a close? And you then vote yes or no on that. That's so polite. That, that's so genteel. Is that, it the sense of the Senate? It's like <laughs> slightly passive-aggressive, but also very, very glamorous. It's like, is it the sense of the parents that the kids should... Go to bed now? Go to bed now. <laughs> yes. Is it, is it the sense? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. That's funny. Yeah. And so it did, over time, it evolved somewhat. Um, the major change that happened over time... Well, initially, they had it where it only applied to actual bills. Nothing else could be invoked cloture on because the actual term of the uh of the motion in the it was like the actual term in the rule was on any measure okay which under congressional rules and stuff is basically a bill resolution joint resolution concurrent resolution okay not a nomination not a motion to proceed or even um it's questionable as to whether amendments would fall under that or not. Interesting. Like constitutional amendments or No, like amendments amendments to a bill. bill. Constitutional amendments are joint resolutions, so it would apply to that, but it definitely did not apply to a motion to proceed. And which means even if you can invoke cloture and debate on the bill itself, if you can never move to proceed to consideration of the bill, meaning you can never bring the bill to the floor in the first place, doesn't matter. Right. So they then ended up amending the rule to have it be basically any motion. So motion, amendments, bills, nominations, you could invoke cloture on any, basically anything that's debatable. Um, at that point, it kept in the two-thirds majority. They then changed it to a three-fifths of all senators uh, duly chosen and sworn. Which means at this point it gets us to it requires 60 votes regardless of how many senators actually vote. Assuming all 100 senators, there's no vacancies, three-fifths of 160 votes. So the senators could be anywhere in the country. They don't have to be in D.C. They don't have to have showed up for the vote. Just if you're sworn in and you're a sitting U.S. senator, got to have three-fifths of that. And so you need 60 I votes. It doesn't matter how many people actually show up and vote no under the current rule. As long as you get 60 As long as you have 60 yes votes, it's invoked. If you only have 59, even if only three people voted against it, it's not invoked because you didn't get the 60 vote, three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn as the rule states. 
Okay, so we've gotten through, we've gotten to closure, we've gotten to the expanded closure, where, where, or uh, was it closure that expanded to with that rewording of yes. the motion? I guess yep. closure expanded to be any any motion, but then um, how has it continued to change even in recent times? So in more recent times, it changed as historically, even though you could filibuster anything, it was normally left like meant most for legislation so amendments to bills to bills or concurrent resolutions joint resolutions um motions to proceed to those types of things they often did not filibuster nominations um the first one that i can recall i could be wrong on this but was the nomination of abe fortis okay. to be supreme court justice i can't remember off the top of my head when that was, um, but it didn't happen often until the 2000s. And in the 2000s, the Democrats in the Senate realized they could filibuster President Bush's judicial nominations. Um, and so they started filibustering them, requiring Republicans to invoke cloture. Sometimes they were able to get the 60 votes to invoke cloture on a nomination. Often they weren't. And the White House would then have to withdraw the nomination and nominate someone else who could get 60 votes to invoke cloture. And just to remind the listeners, if you're not a, a Senate you know, nerd or aficionado, the Senate doesn't just do legislation. It does these things like like confirmations of not presidential nominees to things from everything from, from Senate-confirmed cabinet positions to federal judges to am- ambassadors, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, – Am I missing anything as far as the the Senate the nomination? Astounding number of presidential Supreme Court appointee, appointees. Yeah, it's actually, I think around a thousand okay. presidential appointees in one form or the other to that the either they, can, they have some sort of review. Um, the president will appoint a, when the new president comes in. They appoint about eight thousand people. Right, but. Mm, a couple, hundreds to a thousand, depending on how they cut the, the lines, will go through some sort of review process. And much of that is handled by the Senate. That's a lot of work for them, more than I think we think of. We think of like, you know, the 20 cabinet-ish high-ranking positions. Right. The ones and, that make headlines. Courts, yeah, the ones headlines. There's a lot more that go through there, actually. Yeah, there's about 1,200 to 1,400 different positions that require Senate confirmation. That sounds right. Now, Good heavens. Do they do them in batches? Can, they will often. So... Especially cabinet level or usually like assistant secretary, deputy secretary, like those like top Top two, three tiers of executive departments and just about any judge, especially circuit court or Supreme Court judge, Mm -hmm. they will have hearings and do everything on them individually. There's a lot of other ones they will do in what's called in bunk, which is basically as a group. Um, And so they'll take a whole lot of different ones. Um, And those range, like the presidential nominations that require Senate confirmation, range from secretary of whatever the department is all the way down to like general and a lot of military rank. You get ones that are appointed, like they're president appointed, Senate confirmed. And so sometimes if you're watching the Senate, like I will at times, most of the time, <laughs> um, you will actually see them as basically unanimous consent to move to the embank consideration of all nominations in the Department of the Air Force at the secretary's desk. Okay. And that might be 
150 nominations. Yep. Do it by, that, do it by department. Do that, that that way. That makes so sense. It's not like they need to do individual confirmation hearings and votes on all 12 to 1400 nominees, yeah. but there's still a lot of them that need those confirmations that they will go ahead yeah. and do that. Now, I want to get I really want to spend time discussing the the philosophy behind the filibuster because that's what's in the headlines today. Is there is is the filibuster a good thing or a bad thing, a friend or a foe? But before we get there, I feel like we have to touch on at least a brief recap of what's the terrifying name has always terrified me as the nuclear option. I remember I was watching <laughs> I was watching the news as a kid, probably a teenager, and and I heard the nuclear option. The, the Senate was discussing the nuclear option. And I'm like, well, that seems like something we should all know about. And yes, we yes. probably shouldn't do. Like There's a reason <laughs> things why going that was applied things to going nuclear sound like a problem. Now that I didn't know anything about the policy, but what what was what is was the nuclear option? Yeah. So the nuclear option was basically I like the way that people will put it. Basically, whoever's on the minority any time that a side tries to do this is they'll say it's breaking the rules to change the rules. Yeah. Um, Senate rules require 60 votes, the three-fifths of senators duly chosen and sworn, for anything except a Senate rules change. Senate rules change still has the generally higher two-thirds majority. Right. So assuming everyone votes, it requires 67 votes to do that. Okay. Well, if you don't have 60 votes to invoke cloture on a nomination or a bill, you probably don't have... You definitely don't have 67 to change change the rules. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So what happened with the nuclear option, it was invoked first time in 2013. Mm -hmm. Um, Harry Reid, as majority leader of the Senate, did this in order to get a lot of President Obama's nominees through. It was invoked a second time in 2017 by uh, Mitch McConnell in order to confirm um, Justice now Justice Neil Gorsuch. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it is is you have the motion to vote cloture requires 60 votes. You get fewer than 60 votes. Majority leader changes his vote to be no, so he's now voting on the side that won. Right. He makes a motion to reconsider. It passes the motion to reconsider, and it basically acts as if that initial vote never happened. Mm-hmm. He then makes a point of order to say that when the Senate rules say three-fifths of senators duly chosen and sworn, when it comes to relation to nominations, what that actually means is a simple majority of senators voting. Chair rightly says, no. Yeah. The rules say three-fifths of senators duly chosen and sworn. That's what it means. Yeah. And the majority leader appeals the, de- the decision of the chair, and by majority vote, they overrule the decision of the chair, saying when the rules say clearly say three-fifths of, the ma- three-fifths of senators, it only means simple majority of senators voting. Right. And they now establish a new precedent. So the rule never changed. If you look up Rule 22 in the rules of the Senate right now, it still says three-fifths of senators duly chosen and sworn. But after the nuclear option has been invoked those two times, the Senate precedent says whenever we're considering any presidential nomination at this point, what the rule says actually means a majority of senators voting. Okay, so that's fascinating. Glenn, if I was going to summarize this, would it be accurate to say that this is functionally a legislative lie? Yeah. Because we're, we're saying words mean something other than what the words mean. 
And every time it's invoked, functionally, we're, we're lying legislatively or procedurally to say this does not mean 60, it means 51. Uh, it seems like that does bad things for precedent. It, well, in the fact, so, so just to kind of, so th- I've, I love how you summarize that, Glenn. That's like the most succinct summary I've ever heard. And just to unpack a few things of it, because for the average listener who's not necessarily tracking the, the, typical standards of procedure for the Senate. Let me see if I can kind of inject my, so I feel like I know a decent, I know more than the average Joe about procedure and, and house and Senate rules. I know a fraction, a small fraction of what Glenn knows. And we have (laughs) some very amusing stories about Glenn's knowledge bank when it comes to Senate rules, right, Joel? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Several years ago, Glenn was actually helping me with a project we were teaching students. Um, And uh, it was an overnight thing. And he was actually asleep in his bed. And uh, one of the the guys that he was teaching, we had a big bunk area, said, hey, hey, Joel, come here, you got to see this. And he dragged me over and I said, what's going on? I said, watch this. He goes, he looks up at Glenn in the bunk and asks Glenn a question about Robert's Rules of Order and Parliamentary Procedure. And Glenn proceeds to sit up in bed and proceed to give a lecture on how Robert's Rules of Order and Senate Procedure work. Glenn is entirely asleep, the, the duration of the lecture. But like, and they do it multiple times. They're like, what about this rule? And that, and the full conversation, lots of detail. And then he's just gone and out again. No memory of it in the morning. Um, let's just say- Still no memory of this. Far more about Senate Rules of Procedure were, than is probably good for anyone except the Senate parliamentarian. Were the answers right? Yes. That's yes, amazing. we looked it up. Like we had to go find Wi-Fi and to Google it, but it was right on. Like incredible text. Absolutely incredible. So, so with that, I'll kind of put my common my common man filter on it, and it basically the several steps there. They take a vote. Then the majority. You said it was the minority leader or the majority. Majority leader. leader. The majority leader switches sides. Sh- switches sides to to the prevailing side, which would have you know voted to to basically in in no on the issue. And he switches sides because only someone in the in the prevailing side can move to reconsider the motion. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So he switches sides. Now, when he switches sides and they get ready to reconsider the motion, why? Why does it? Why does that have to happen before he can say, you know, the the incorrect interpretation of the rules is going to get smacked down by the by the chair or the, or the parliamentarian? Which one? It's technically the chair okay. who's operating under the advice Vice of, the of the parliamentarian. Okay, so it gets smacked down by the chair, and then that's the whole point, is they want the chair to smack it down so then they can vote and say, actually, we're all voting together, and by a simple majority of 51 votes, we think that, that we've changed this. So why can't they just do that the first time around? Why can't they begin by saying, uh, you know, here's my incorrect interpretation of the rules that gets smacked down by the chair? I'm not 100% sure okay. on that. Okay. Um, Maybe they just need to te- – like, like, I guess part of it is actually seeing if the vote's not going to go in your favor because there's all the wrangling Well, beforehand. you also – to appeal the decision of the chair, you need the ruling. Yeah. Right. You, you can't appeal a, a decision of the chair that did not exist. Well, I – Right. I get that, but wouldn't you be able to get? And I don't want to. I don't like. Like I don't mean to derail us too far, but like, wouldn't you be able to get that that chair ruling of saying by just opening up with the rules say that a simple majority will work in this case. The chair rules no. Excuse me. Point of order. I rule against your point of order. 
Well, it would be a state uh, until there's a vote that the chair rules on. It's yeah. simply a statement made by the senator. Right. The okay. senator is allowed to say whatever the senator is allowed to say, and that that exists pretty much up and down the legislative uh, tree. Once the state, once there's actually a ruling, however, right, then you can appeal it, um, and that's consistently held true in most of legislative that levels makes in sense. the U.S. So. So then it's necessary political drama to be able to execute the lie. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So anyways, that's the nuclear option. Glenn, you said it was first done by Harry Reid. Then it was done by Mitch McConnell later. That meant that presidential nominees and, and judges of all of Senate confirmed judges of pretty much all stripes, including up to the Supreme court now by Senate precedent exist under that 51 vote majority. Yes. Now we come to the, to the big, the big wrangling of the day. And I think we, I think we can, we can also, we may touch on that that nuclear option philosophy later in the discussion more. But the big question now is, why do some people hate the filibuster? I have, I have in recent weeks, um, kind of since the the Biden administration came in, especially from the Democrats, especially from progressives and and people on the left, the political left, I'm seeing tons of arguments and tons of articles being written and not just opinion pieces but straight up what's being passed as journalism mm-hmm. saying the filibuster is bad wrong in moscow why why is there controversy surrounding the filibuster there's controversy surrounding the filibuster usually any t- time that a majority in the senate wants to get stuff done without 60 votes and therefore can't get it done. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact bill that it was on, but I remember in the last Congress when Mitch McConnell was majority leader, President Trump was pressuring McConnell to go ahead and invoke the nuclear option on the legislative filibuster, ending that so they could get something passed, which is 51 votes, because they couldn't get it through with 60 votes. Um and Mitch McConnell, to his credit, said, no, I'm not blowing up the Senate completely. Like, I'll continue through what Harry Reid did with nominations because everyone knew the only reason Harry Reid did not include Supreme Court nominees when he did it in 2013 was he didn't. there was no guarantee that Mitch, or that President Obama would have a Supreme Court nomination, and he wasn't going to do that until he knew that he did. Yeah. But if one opened up... Everyone knew Harry Reid was going to invoke it on that. Sure. So Mitch McConnell's like, I'll go, I will do that. I personally disagree with that, but that's what Mitch McConnell did is I will do that, but I'm not blowing up the Senate on a whole and taking away the legislative filibuster. Yep. Which took a lot of flack from President Trump, a lot of Republican members in the House, some members of the Senate who wanted him to do that as well. Um, so you kind of see that any time that the majority wants to pass something. Now it's getting to almost a whole new level, partially because some of the stuff Democrats are wanting to do right now is so extreme that there's no chance of bipartisanship. In the past, you would often try to be able to figure out a bipartisan way to get to stuff to be able to get that 60 votes. And some of the stuff that the Democrats are wanting to pass there's no way they could pass anything close to what they want and get 10 Republican votes. Okay. So that's why you're seeing it so much right now is they have the slimmest of majorities, 
I mean, the only way they have the majority is because of the vice president being able to break a tie. Right. Um, so without that tie-breaking vote, they can't do anything. So with the slimmest of majorities, they want to get stuff done. They, it's not like they only have to pull off two, three, four Republicans, and you could po- probably get like a Murkowski and a Collins, yeah. two senators who tend to be more bipartisan, willing to work with Democrats well, on stuff. 10. You need 10. Yeah. And you're not going to get 10, especially not on some of the legislation they're pushing through. Yeah. Right. The Equality Act, H.R. 1, some of those things that they're trying to push through. Yep. You're not getting 10. You're probably not getting Murkowski or Collins at all either. Yeah. yeah. Frankly, with some of them, I don't know that they're going to get Manchin, yeah. who is a Democrat. I'm just yeah. get the 50, um, to be yeah, I don't know yeah. if they're going to get 50 on some of those things. If I can speak to the politics of this, I yeah. Len's laid out the... Technical nature of, of the, the the problem right now really well, but I think more than that, there's a philosophical war on the filibuster that comes from a determinative approach that there is no bipartisan. There is our, our, a worldview, a, a, a vision of reality or of law that will be implemented. Full stop. Mm-hmm. Nothing gets in its way. And anything that gets in its way, because there's a presumption that it is absolutely right and impossible being incorrect, which is a very dangerous way to legislate. Mm-hmm. Uh, thus, there is no room for dispute, argument, or, cons- or careful consideration. And as a result, the filibuster stands squarely in the way of brute force government. Mm-hmm. And as a result, politically, it's got to go because the country is not unified around the ideas that are being pushed here. And thus, it is an impediment to their ability to rewrite or reshape law. So that's kind of the progressive, the progressive motivation, you would say, yes. is, that, is that this is what must happen. This is the only, this is the only right thing. It is the only and acceptable big course. surprise. I mean, it's important to remember in politics, big surprise that you think your side is right. Okay. Well, right. okay. That's why we have sides, you well, know, of course we do. And, um, yeah, but then, but then basically saying, so thus we must, we must change it so that we can do, you know, what, what we want to do. So here's, here's what's missing from the, the, the ingredients. Both sides think they're right. That's kind of the nature of having a side, right? Right. You think your side is right. What tempers that historically in American politics, or what should temper it, and I think what we as Christians should say should temper it, would be an understanding of humility, saying that we believe we're right, but we also understand that we aren't perfect. And if you aren't willing to say, I think I'm right, versus saying, I am right, right. and putting that understanding that I can get it wrong and being able to will, willing to take um, ideas and feedback and corrective action and even losing... In the pursuit of an idea that probably is a good idea, I think several of the motivations aren't bad. The details are where it's horrific. Uh-huh. But if you, if you jettison that humility that says, I could be wrong, the filibuster really is a problem. Because if you believe that your idea is absolutely perfect and thus anything in opposition to it is inherently bad, the filibuster becomes an evil that has to be dealt with. Right. If you understand that you are imperfect and that all people are and that this is my best idea, but it will take constructive feedback to improve it, well then, the filibuster becomes a really valuable tool. So what would, and Glenn, Joel, you can both chime in on this, but, you know, and I think, Joel, that's, that I, I agree with you in that philosophical sense, but how does that work out 
today mm. because people who right now are big opponents of the filibuster, they would just be very insulted by that. And they'd say, it's not my arrogance. It's X, Y, Z, five, six, seven reasons yep. that they believe the filibuster is completely wrong. What are some of those common objections that at least today we're typically seeing from the left? I mean, the big one is like they would not say that it's an arrogance problem. They would just say like these are things that need to get done. It's mm-hmm. progress, and right. we have to make progress. We have to pass HR one. We have to pass the Equality Act. We have to codify Roe v. Wade. All this stuff, yeah. and they're like, we have to get this done. It's progress. Republicans are standing in the way of progress, and we can't let a minority in the Senate stop progress from happening. Progress is a moral imperative. Um, and and our, our, our progressive friends um, may not put it in those terms, but they certainly function in those terms. Mm-hmm. And, and to be fair, there's nothing wrong with making progress. In fact, making progress is a good thing. Okay? Yeah. Now, what you define progress as will matter yeah. quite a bit, right? Sure. But making progress, when there are, when there are things that are broken and are flaw, that are flaws and failures in our society, in our system of government, in our laws, in our justice, in our access, those are all things that should be addressed. Right. Then the question is, how are they addressed, and is that the right way to address it? Right. So one of the objections I weighed, I waded into a Twitter discussion uh, last week. Dangerous water. Yeah, dangerous water, and I tried to, to make sure I behaved myself. But the well done on Twitter. I, I tried. Um, I, I don't. You know, others can be the judge of if I succeeded. But the the thing that I was getting a lot from from very progressive people who were who were disagreeing with me about the filibuster is they're basically saying. It is wrong for a minority to be able to hold up the majority when the American people have elected a Democrat majority in this case to the Senate. It is wrong for Republican senators to be able to, with the legislative filibuster, shut it down because they know that, that for, their, for their extreme issues at least, they're not getting 60 votes. And they were basically saying that is practically immoral. They were saying it was immoral. That is wrong, bad, horrible, broken way to do things. What do you guys think about that? Is is it proper that a majority – is there an issue that is, is there an issue there? Or flip side, because this was kind of my, my perspective in the conversation, my, 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 this would be my counterargument. And you guys tell me if you think I'm right or, or completely off base. My counterargument is basically, sure, the American people elected a slim Democrat majority – and the voters, whether or not they're all experts or up on Senate procedure or not, the rule book was in place before the election. And the rule book said there's 51 vote issues and there's 60 vote issues mm-hmm. in the Senate. So the fact that the American people elected a slim majority does not mean the American people elected a supermajority that is required for your more extreme ideas. So that's, that's my rebuttal. And I'm like, that, you know, don't try to confuse the issue. Sure. You, you by, by all rights, have a mandate of a tiny fraction of a majority. Right. That doesn't mean you get anything on your most extreme divisive issues. Daniel, you're absolutely right. Um, the, we, don't, we don't live in an absolute democracy. Okay? We live in a, a democracy that has limits, and those limits are put in place to protect minorities. Because we've seen in history what happens when of minorities in absolute democracies. Okay. And as a result, there are a whole series of limits that are built into our system of government designed to protect abuses and to limit the railroading aspect 
of a very slim majority. And and that's really, really important. Our justice system is built on that. Our system of federalism is built on that idea. Our system of government in general is designed to very carefully make sure that those minorities are not overridden by a slim majority. And that's good. It's really good. And it's really important. And to say, we have a very slim majority, therefore, we can do whatever we want— First of all, I would argue is dangerous. And second of all, I would argue is foolish. And third, I think would actually go contrary to most of the principles that our government actually runs on. We do respect the will of the majority, but we do not give them the ability to do whatever they want. If that was true, we do not need a constitution, let alone a body of laws. It's just whatever the decision of the day is. That's actually a really good point. That's not how our system of government works. And frankly, it's not how almost any system of government works for really good reason. Yeah. Tyrannies work that way, and we don't like those. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is great. I'm I'm getting fired up here. Um, But so the flip side of that, just to play devil's advocate here, the House works on a simple majority, and it's fine for the House. What, why isn't what's good for the House good for the Senate? <laughs> Glenn? <laughs> well, I'm and like- I, I might, you know, granted, I have some thoughts on this. I'm not as ignorant as I sound here. I'm, I am playing devil's advocate, but yeah, tell me why. Well, I would say, one, it's fine for one body to be that way. For one body to operate under straight-up majority rules, minority, sorry, like, yeah. you have no place in the legislative like process here yeah. unless I can't keep my majority together. Right. Um, if you can convince me to join your side, then sure. Right? Yeah. It's like either you join us, like if I'm in the majority in the house, I can say to the minority, like you join us or sorry, like yeah. have a good day. Enjoy making your motions to recommit and giving your speeches against stuff and then watch us pass it because I have the votes. Yeah. It's fine for one body to be that way. If both bodies operate that way, especially when they're both controlled by one party, you're going to have those one party, high, hyper-partisan stuff that's coming through. And it's okay for that type of thing to happen when you have a supermajority in the Senate, mm-hmm. when your Senate has 60 votes, yeah. like it did for a little while, 2009, 2010, Democrats had 60 votes mm-hmm. in the United States Senate at that yeah. point. Although some of the stuff they did was so unpopular that it led to a Republican getting elected in Massachusetts. Which a Republican senator got elected from Massachusetts after Ted Kennedy passed away. Yeah. And that dropped the Senate, the Democrats in the Senate down to 59 votes. Okay. They had 60 before that. So this idea that we can do whatever we want and we're just going to gain control. Yeah. Well, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Like, and, but that's where, so the Senate being a check on the House is an important thing to say, yeah, the House can go ahead and pass whatever it wants on straight-up party lines, but we're going to make sure that we actually think through stuff in the Senate, that we deliberate on it, that we have either we have 60 votes from our party that got sent to the Senate, yeah. in which case we can go ahead and rush through what we want. Yeah. Otherwise, members of the minority get to have input and get to have say and get to say okay, we'll go along with this now. I think that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing to say, no, just a bare majority, 50 votes with the vice president's high-breaking vote. That's not enough to do whatever the heck you want. No. If you get 60 votes, 
then okay. That's a large part of the country saying, we like what you're running on. We want you to do what you're doing. That's what we call a mandate. Okay. What they have right now is a majority, barely. It is the slimmest possible majority in the United States Senate. And the House is not the slimmest possible, but it's really it's close. very slim right now. In fact, it shrank in the last election. Yeah, uh, the, the the Democrat majority on that. Yeah, they so were expected to pick up a lot of seats, and they did, the reverse. they did the reverse. They currently, I think, right now, because of two members who resigned to take seats or to take positions in the uh, Biden administration, mm-hmm. I think Democrats currently have two hundred and twenty seats in the House. For context of of you need two hundred and eighteen to have a majority. So they got a, 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 majority, yeah. a majority plus two. Granted, they've got two right now. That's two seats that aren't in there. So it's not so like the, it's a 220 to 216. Right, right. There are four vacancies, two Republican seats, two Democrat seats okay. that are vacant. It's highly expected that when they have those special elections for those, they'll stay same party. Yeah. Um, but that means it's going to be a 222-seat majority. Yeah. That's four votes over what they need to actually do stuff. It doesn't get much slimmer than that in the House. So for Democrats to try to argue they have a mandate, yes, they control the House, the Senate, and the White House. But the House and Senate, they control by two of the slimmest majorities. Right. That's not a mandate. Yeah, that's I, I love that. That's very true. And just just remembering that like this 60 votes thing for cloture in the Senate is not something that we just pulled out of thin air in some like recent Five years ago, or something like 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 this is this is how the Senate's worked for 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 I don't know if it's quite hundreds of years yet, but 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 for over a hundred years, and you know that's the expectation. So yeah, I I think that's a fantastic answer to that objection. Um, a couple more things. I know we we don't have a ton more time, but Joel, I I want to I want to I want to see if I can throw one question to Glenn and one question to Joel. And Joel, yours was. A minute ago, you referenced the term federalism. So get ready. In just a second, I'm going to ask you to try and summarize this whole concept of federalism, what it is. Before we go there, I want to throw over to Glenn. Why? Because I'm reading articles. You know, I I believe in the filibuster. I'll lay my cards on the table. It sounds like most of us here believe in the filibuster. It's kind of a – one, conservatives tend to believe in it. But two, you know, a lot of us seem pretty convinced that it's a core aspect of of – a free government like we have. Now, why do people say, and, and especially progressives right now, and, and yes, this is set up by a lot of issues, but specifically about the filibuster, that the filibuster is racist. Is the filibuster racist? So the filibuster is a mechanism. It's a mechanism for a minority to slow or stop something from coming through the Senate. It was used at times by Southern Democrats to block civil rights legislation. Mm -hmm. Depending on which specific bill you're talking about, sometimes they just slowed it down, but it got passed anyway. Other times they blocked the bill from happening altogether. So, yes, the filibuster was used to block or stop civil rights legislation that I think should have been passed. I'm glad some of it was able to get passed. Wish some of the other stuff had been passed. Yeah. but as you look through it, it's a tool that was used in this case. It was a tool that was used by racists. Yeah. But it's also been used by other people throughout history in ways that I can look at and go, I agree with that. I'm glad it was used in that. Yeah. It was also been used by liberals 
to stop stuff that I really wish it got passed. Yeah. Um, the last four years, there have been a handful of pro-life bills in the Senate that I really wanted to get passed. Yep. Thinking one of the main ones, Ben Sass's um, Born Alive Abortion mm-hmm. Survivors Protection Act. Yeah. Basically just saying that if in the process of an abortion, the baby is born alive, the doctor has to give medical care and try to save the baby. Yeah. And Democrats filibustered that and stopped it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and So to say the filibuster is racist is like... It makes about it as much sense. Our cancel culture idea right now yeah. of if it's ever been used for anything bad, then it's evil and horrible and you got to get rid of it. But the filibuster is not racist. It was used by racists. It's also been used by principled people that I agree with and principled people that I disagree with. But to try to say that it was that the tool itself is racist because of how it's been used defies logic. That that's a great answer and. It's in a sense, it brings it back to this philosophical discussion, which is, does our system give place to the voice of the minority when there when there's a slim majority? Or do you know? And and some people seem to think that we shouldn't, but I would point back to every other time. You know, the fact that it was used by racists means that at that moment, the racists were in the minority. Yep. It's progress is slow sometimes, but that means it's progress. If the racists are having to use the filibuster, that's much better than the days where the racists didn't have to filibuster. And now we've got now we've got a time where we do have key pieces of civil rights legislation passed that were not stopped. Yeah, and so we see that that progress towards what we believe to be the right thing can still happen even when we give the minority say in the issue. And I think the the gamble or the belief, the conviction that conservatives have is that we believe that we should give those minority voices a say, up to 60 votes, up to a supermajority in the Senate, because we don't know, and history shows us, that the majority is not right just because they're a majority. And sometimes they're going to be in the right and sometimes they're going to be in the wrong. But we need something to moderate the influence of that, just like you were saying a minute ago. And so I think that's I think that's a great answer. And one other thing I would just point out is even during that time, it was used by racists to block civil rights legislation. Yeah, it was also and I was trying to find and I can't remember everything off the top of my head. But there was a point where after you had, like, desegregation of schools, yep. one of the things that they were going to and were using was, like, busing. Yep, and right. that was one of the ways that they were going to help actually, like, have desegregated schools right. and have the integrated schools. Right. Well, there was a bill that was trying to come through that I don't remember all the details on it, but basically would have made that impossible and just based off of busing side of stuff would have reinforced segregation in schools. Mm-hmm. And people... They were able to filibuster and stop that bill from coming through during all of this. So while filibuster was used by racists to block civil rights legislation, it was also used by people to stop bad racist legislation from coming through. Yeah, that's like – yeah. It's like saying saying, uh, a criminal used a gun, so guns are bad. Or it's like saying someone killed someone with a car, therefore the car is bad. Right, right. The mechanism, the mechanism doesn't imply a moral good or evil. Correct. Um, and so then we have to come back to a philosophically, why does the mechanism exist? And that's what gets us to federalism. It does. So Joel, what can you tell us about federalism for a few minutes? All right. Federalism in concept is the idea that we take our power and we divide it into different groups. Okay. So uh, in, in the case of the U.S., you have federal and you have state. Uh, you have local, 
Okay, uh, and each state arranges that a little differently. As someone who works in a local level, um, let's just say that Virginia is not a particularly strong federalist state. Uh, the the local uh, legal entities, towns, counties, etc., have a pretty small amount of power, and only explicitly what's given to them from the one above it. It's called the Dillon Rule. Other states are quite a bit different, where their towns and municipalities have a great deal of independence. And that varies state by state. We call it the laboratories of democracy, where different uh, places and different cultures and peoples are able to try out slightly different variations of how we approach government. That's really cool. It also means that we've set up our uh, federal government not only to have federalism between the local, state, and federal levels, but also uh, back and forth within the, the government at the federal level, which we would normally call checks and balances. Okay? And it's this idea of dividing powers into multiple buckets and multiple areas so that one group cannot run roughshod over everything. Now, federalism takes damage when one group attempts to compel another to do as they wish. Or at least if they successfully do. I guess the attempt is pretty normal. Um, but when they succeed, we get problems. So, for example, federalism takes damage when the federal government goes to the states and says, here's what we want you to do. And we can't make you do it because of the way the legal structure is, but we're going to withhold all this money from you unless you do it our way. Mm -hmm. And then the states often, but not always, will do what the federal government says. And thus the federal government gets more say into how the state governments work than by law they, they are obligated to. Um, it also takes damage when the legislature says, I want to do this thing, but I don't want to figure out the law. Here, president, you do my job. And they chuck part of their responsibilities as a legislative lawmaking entity mm -hmm. over to the president. Or when the Supreme Court is the one who's having to basically essentially write law because it was so poorly written on the legislative level that the thing is a mess. Okay, Each of these things uh, blur our lines. But nonetheless, the lines do exist. And the idea is that to be able to push an idea through requires the idea have broad support across the federal and state levels, up and down the systems, and in different branches, be it executive, legislative, judicial. And that way, one of them can't mandate something across the spectrum. And the end result of that is there are a lot of different ways to slow down, roadblock, or stop things from moving forward. Reason being... Things done in the moment, in a high moment of passion, often aren't the best idea. And so our system of government, in multiple levels, in multiple ways, slows things down, and then it creates essentially equal and different aspects of government. Um, at the federal level to the state level, there are certain things that the, the federal government can't tell the states to do. Full stop. There's actually no way the federal government can compel the state to do one thing or the other. We saw this recently with COVID, okay, where state governors suddenly started flexing powers and muscles that no one really even knew they had because yeah. we haven't used it in a really long time, thank the Lord. But nonetheless, we saw very different aspects of how the states responded to COVID uh, based on what is actually federalism? Yeah. And there was a bunch of arguments about it. And frankly, a lot of people were really grateful or really frustrated one with the other because they liked the federal or the state response. Right. And you even saw people, New York is an excellent example, where the federal, the state government implemented certain rules and a bunch of people in New York said, I think I'm going to go to my summer home in another state right. because I don't like your rules. And they left and now they're worried they're not going to come back. Right. Okay? Uh, you saw people who said, I'm going to take grandma and we're not going to live in New York anymore because we're not going to be in that nursing home. Yeah. And that might have saved grandma's life depending yeah. on how that story goes out. We haven't seen the end of that yet. But that federalism provides alternatives. Yep. And that protects a diversity of viewpoints. And that's really important. So that's that's a beautiful description. 
is it is it fair to say? Would you both agree that that the Senate versus the House that we see federalism at play far more in the Senate than we see in the House, or 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 what is the Senate's special relationship with federalism? Might be the better question. Well, I think in, the federalism comes into play in the House and Senate. And Glenn, you're you're more the technical expert, so correct me when I get this wrong. Okay, but each of those bodies are representative of their states, the House being more specifically the people within those states, and the Senate, the state holistically, okay? Mm -hmm. And so it allows the state, the state's governments, the state people, to project their view and their will into the federal system, right? So it goes up there. And it also means that when California's members of the House want to do something, they have to run into Nebraska senators who go, I don't think so, okay? Mm -hmm. And it allows each state to check another. It, what it doesn't allow is for a state easily to override another state. Mm -hmm. Each time it's designed to allow the states to slow down stuff that could harm them. And that reflects the beauty of the diversity that is the United States of America. But to maintain that diversity, and to, if we say that's good, then we have to shield it. Otherwise, yeah. the natural tendency is to make something monolithic and all of one type. And, well, that actually doesn't end well for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and and just for a refresher, kind of basic civics for anybody listening, and I'm sure you all may already know this, but just in case, the House, of course, is rep we, we have representatives in the House based on population in congressional districts. So you get the more people that live in your state, the more seats in the House that you get. The Senate is a two senators per state, and that's how it works. And, and that was a huge discussion at the time of – the Constitution at the time of um, the, the forming of American government saying, why should all states be equally represented in the Senate? And is that still a good idea? And you'll, you'll see some people who think that's not a good idea at all today. Um, but ironically, the and, – and, and yes, if you go you – know, if you go looking around the internet as I have, you will still just like – Unfortunately, it seems like the de facto response for something the left doesn't like today is that's racist, which I think really is actually insulting to the very serious racist issues that our country has to has to face. But like every everything, if everything's racist, nothing's racist in, in a sense. Is if you're if you're calling things that aren't racist racist, then you've watered down the term completely. And the 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 federalism of the Senate by representing the interest of each state equally no matter their population. You got Rhode Island with two, you've got California with two, was actually, if I'm correct, a, uh, uh, something that abolitionists were very concerned about at the time of the Senate when we were figuring out how the Senate would work. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, look at the states or at that point colonies yeah. that we had, the population centers were largely in the southern states. Yeah. Um, I mean, their population is like what we have today isn't Sure, really it was all, all different was numbers. Yeah. Everything's changed around. But when you look at the by state, two senators per state, it was states like Virginia that really didn't like that idea yeah. because they had a lot more population. And they didn't think it was fair that they had the same number of senators as a state like Rhode Island did yep. or Connecticut. Like, and But when you actually think about it, you look at free state versus slave state, things would be very different today if both the House and the Senate were um, structured not with the House being by population and Senate equal by state. If both of them were population-based— 
we would have a very different look right now. I mean, I can't forecast exactly what would be different through history, but a lot of these debates over slavery would have been settled very differently if Virginia and South Carolina and some of those southern states had more senators than the free states did. So that's fascinating. And as we land the plane here on this discussion, I think the the last thing I want to say is why – what do you think is behind – to me, one of the huge objections or one of the huge protections of the filibuster is that it lets you know that when you are in the minority, when your party, when your side, when your philosophical persuasion is not the prevailing one of the day, you still matter and you still get to impact the process. Progressives right now who are saying, you know, it's 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 horrible that conservatives can impact the process when they're in a slim minority. Why don't why does why isn't the natural self-preserving thought there? Oh wait, I'll be in the minority one day. What about you know, do unto others? <laughs> how how would I like to? How would I feel it, next time I'm in the minority if we get rid of the legislative filibuster? I, well, I can't speak to their mindset or how they view the the march of history going forward. I will say that we have seen what happens in societies when generations of people feel that they have no voice in the process or groups of people. Any sort of, any sort of community that feels that it is, it is ignored, it doesn't matter, it's disengaged, it has no platform. Every time that happens in history, really bad stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Violence happens. Okay? Uh, countries split. Wars occur. Bloodshed is not crazy when you look at histories of those groups, and it's really sad. And one of the things that I think is brilliant about the way our country is designed is it is designed to, to, to allow every group to try to get to the table and have, even when they're not even the majority, to have a seat still yep. and to be able to speak into those issues and to have a voice on those matters. And it means that when you're not in power, first of all, you still get a say, and that gives you a place for engagement. Second of all, it gives you I think some hope that that doesn't mean that you're done and gone. Yeah. Okay. And that the other side can't utterly crush you, whatever that side is, doesn't matter which side. And it gives you some faith in the, in the structure, yeah. which is helpful to increase, engage participation. Okay. We saw what happened when people said, you know, I don't have faith in the system as being equitable or fair anymore. Okay. And when they didn't, Horrific things happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, that lack of trust in the institutions that are built, okay, really matters to the to the community and character and and unity and even just general common decency in a country. Okay, when people disengage and they say it doesn't matter, it could be on the question of voting, it could be on the question of representatives listening to me, be a question on whether government is trustworthy, etc. Whenever they get to the point where they say. I don't believe you, it doesn't matter anymore, then they start looking at other options on the table to make their voice heard, and those get real dangerous real fast. Yeah. So I, I think it's absolutely crucial that we maintain every position we have in our structure of government to keep people engaged, to keep people at the table, and to let their voices be heard. Because as soon as we tell a group, you don't matter, and shove them away and say, you can't speak here anymore, well, eventually you will hear them, right. and it will not be in a method you want. Yeah. It will be bad for everyone involved because there will be suffering. It happens over and over in history. And we have apparently chosen to not remember that lesson. And that has me really concerned. Glenn, do you have anything to add to that? I agree with everything that Joel said. Um, I do think 
kind of back to your like question as far as people wanting to remove the filibuster and what about when they're in the minority? Yeah. Um, some of them just don't think they will ever be in the minority if they get rid of the filibuster. Um, Why is that? Some of that has to do with the, A, when it gets to H.R. 1, their election reform bill, mm-hmm. they say, like, if we pass this and open up voting in all the different ways that it does, that we're never going to lose elections. But I've also heard some of them say, like, some of these other bills, the Equality Act, um, some of their criminal justice reform, which is just a bad bill in and of itself. I'm mm-hmm. all in favor of criminal justice reform. Their bill doesn't do it. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of this stuff where they say, like, if we pass this stuff, it's going to be so popular that we're going to win all sorts of elections. Yeah. And we're not going to lose the elections because people are going to love us and love what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um and I have a feeling that that's incredibly short-sighted. Mm-hmm. I think if they get rid of the filibuster now, they will very much regret it when Republicans eventually take back a majority. Yeah, It may happen really soon. It may be slightly longer down the road, but at some point it will happen. And if we don't have a filibuster, there's a lot of pro-life legislation that they've been blocking via filibuster that we will get through. Yeah, There's a lot of other stuff that they've blocked via filibuster that with a Republican majority in the House and Senate and no filibuster in place anymore, we'll get through. So this is interesting. I think we've got to wrap it here, but I want to thank you guys both for taking the time. This has been a fascinating discussion. It's definitely one of those discussions that you're in the weeds of politics. Oh, yeah. But what's strange is that this is one of those issues where some in the weeds issues, it's like, yeah, whatever, it's the way it works, but it's just kind of a, a fun fact. This is a structural the, – the filibuster is a rather like structural pillar of the way our legislative process works and how different things would be getting done so much faster if we removed it. I think that you guys have, have had wonderful perspectives and I think for those listening, it boils down to what you may have heard when you first started learning civics, which is the American system of government is a bit clunky. It isn't the fastest car – in the stable, there there are multiple governments around the world that they're like you know if speed is the goal, ha, I got the idea today, it's in place tomorrow, and everyone has to listen. Well, that's great, but that's what you get with a dictator. Mm-hmm. We've decided that that's not worth the risk. We would rather trade some efficiency. We would rather trade some expediency for something that's going to last. Stability. Yeah. For some stability, for yeah. something that honors multiple voices with that humility that you mentioned, Joel, saying, we all know that we might be on the wrong side of history. Like, 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 like on some level, that's what we're saying when we listen to the minorities, that there's a chance that our majority, we, we definitely know that our majorities will not always be on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. So we're going to make the minority, we're going to give them some actual real power to at least throw the brakes on something and make you have to reach a higher threshold with that 60-vote threshold. There are a lot of great examples in American history where the majority was wrong, and it yep. changed. And thankfully, in many cases, the minority was able to put a restraining hand on that and hold back that which is bad until we got to a place where we could get to what is good. Yeah, yeah. And that's how ideas morph. That's how societies change. Hopefully, it's how we reach towards actual progress, real truth, things that are right and good. And, and so from... It sounds like all of us here 
are, are, are pretty much fans of the filibuster. And if you have any questions or you have any points that you want to, to you know, contradict us with that we haven't addressed here, send an email to info at generationjoshua.org. We'd love to hear from you. And it could even inspire another part two of this. So anyways, thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Joel, for being here. And thank you guys for listening. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having us, Daniel. Hey, friends, if you enjoyed today's episode of the Gen J podcast, go ahead and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most of the other major podcast sites and apps. If you really liked the show, go ahead and leave us a five star rating and a review, uh, hopefully a good review to help other people find it. Uh, This is really helpful when we're starting out with a new show to help people connect with the podcasts who are already listening to similar podcasts. We would love to stay in touch with you, so shoot us an email at info at generationjoshua.org or follow us at Generation Joshua on Instagram and Facebook. We will be back soon with another episode.